Welcome to the Hills. If you're in person at the NRH campus, the West Fort Worth campus, Southlake campus, or if you're in a home, uh, wherever you are joining us today, I'm really glad you're here. But I want to begin by just acknowledging something that we need to get on the table, and that is uh, we're tired and we're sad. It's been now about 10 months of dealing with this pandemic that has changed everything. You know, when we first uh, began to deal with the pandemic, I remember thinking, I don't know anyone who has had the virus. It seems like now I know more people who have had it than haven't. Early on, I said, I don't know anyone who's died from the virus. Well, now I can say I know a lot of people who have died, some very close to me, some in our church, including even this past week, Julie Squire, a longtime member of our church family. We're tired and we're sad. And you know what? It's okay to be sad. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean we don't grieve. It just means that we don't grieve like people who have no hope. But it's okay to grieve the losses we have felt because we have felt many. We've lost the capacity to travel, to do our jobs the way we want to do our jobs, to raise and school our children the way we want to do that. The capacity to be with loved ones even when they're in the hospital. And we've lost friends and members of our family. What I want to do is is cultivate a holy sadness. I want to be sad well. Sad while still keeping hope alive. And I want you to join me in that. So I just want to start today by asking everyone to bow their heads, wherever you are, online, in person, would you bow your head? And for a moment, I want us to be silent. And here's what I want you to do. Put something before the Lord right now that is really exhausting you or making you sad. Just give it to the Lord and ask for the wisdom to do sad well. Oh God, we come to you this morning admitting we're tired and we're sad. This has been a long journey. And while we're beginning to see maybe there's some light at the end of this tunnel, it looks like the tunnel's still going to be pretty long. And for some of us right now, the tunnel is very dark. We need renewed energy to do life as well as we can under these circumstances. And we need Holy Spirit comfort in the places where we are very sad. I'm asking you, God, to bless all those right now who have lost friends and loved ones. Comfort their hearts. I'm asking you, God, to bless those right now who are dealing with serious illness themselves or in their family. I'm asking you to bless parents who are trying to discern what is the best way to raise and to educate my children in this context. And I'm asking you, God, 
to show us how in this moment we can lean into the gospel that even our sadness can be a testimony to our hope. And finally, God, unapologetically, I ask, would you end this season sooner than later? And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for letting me do that. Uh, it does seem like this is an appropriate time to have had a series on anxiety. And I want to thank all of you for the feedback I got to that series. And next week, I'm excited, Taylor and I are launching a series called Second Guessing Jesus. And here's the premise. We have all questioned God. We just don't always want to say it out loud. Now, I'm not talking so much about questioning if God exists. I think sometimes we just question, is God right? And so we're going to be looking through the gospel of Mark at many times where people just wonder, Jesus, I'm not sure you're right. I think we're going to be blessed by that study. So that starts next week. You can be reading the gospel of Mark in advance. But what I want to do today is something I have been doing about this time of year, every year for the last 15 years. I want to talk to you about our church and our vision. If you're new to our church, for the last 15 years, our church pursued what we called our 20 20 vision. We celebrated the end of that pursuit last November. So for 15 years, about this time of year, I would stand before you and I would give you an update on our vision. And I thought last year that at this time this year, I would be talking to you about our next new vision. Well, needless to say, I did not factor a global pandemic into my forecast. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have a vision. We started working on the next vision for our church about three years ago, praying, fasting, searching. I was commissioned by the elders to lead that process. I met with ministry groups throughout our churches at every campus. I met with elders and their wives in dinners and got their feedback on what about the last vision was great, what about the next vision should be included. Uh, and then you might recall in 2019, I went on a retreat to pray and fast for several days to ask God for a vision. And through all that process and bringing it back to the elders, we do feel like God has given us a real strong, clear vision for our future. What we don't feel is that this is the best time to reveal it because so much of this next vision we can't engage yet because of the current pandemic protocols. So we hope we can unveil it maybe next fall. And until then, we're going to be praying, we're planning, we're training potential leaders, we're even test driving some of the big dreams that God has laid on our hearts. So here's what I want to do today. I want to give you a glimpse of our next church vision. And what I want to do is inspire you to be people of vision that pursue it. So I mentioned that retreat I went on. And I asked you to pray for me. Now, when I pray, I like to walk. I like to prayer walk. So I got to this place, and the first day, I just prayed and thanked God. I walked, in six days, I think I walked about 90 miles. And that first day, all I did was just thank God for the last vision and for the way he had been so faithful. Now we get to day two, and I go on a prayer walk. And I'm into about mile two, and I have received no revelation from the Lord. And I started to panic. 
I started to think, oh, no, I'm going to go back home. And the elders are going to say, what did the Lord give you? And I'm going to say, I got nothing. And I began to be afraid. But then about mile two, it dawned on me that the spirit of fear doesn't come from the Lord. I captured that thought. I, I remember a preacher talking about that recently, and I thought what he said was brilliant. So I captured that thought. And immediately the Holy Spirit impressed on me the verse of Jesus where he said, if your son asked for a bread, would you give him a snake? If he asked for an egg, would you give him a scorpion? Now, if you know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more does your Father in heaven know how to give to you? And immediately I began to praise God and say, God, you're a good father. And you're going to give me something. And I'm going to thank you and not walk in fear until you do. And it wasn't 15 to 20 minutes later I received a word from the Lord. Clear as day. I could tell you where I was standing when it happened. And here's what the Lord gave me. Ask for nations and generations. So when I got back to where I was staying, I got my laptop out. And I said, I'm going to read every verse in the Bible that has the word nations or generations in it. Well, I didn't realize there were over 900 verses. And it took about four hours. And it was so rich as I just began to... Veil and see the heart of God. For example, God's redemptive plan starts with Abraham. And what does he say? Through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. And throughout the Psalms, you have verse after verse that God wants to be praised in the nations. And the prophets told Israel, you're to be a light to the nations. And you get to the end of the Bible and Revelation gives us this glimpse of every tribe and every tongue and every nation around the throne of God. And you have the words of Jesus, his final marching orders to us in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. God has a heart for the nations and for the generations. And I began to see over and over God saying, I want to bless to the thousandth generation. I also began to see a pattern that every time the people of God have stumbled into sin, it's always been their failure to give to the next generation the faith that they had. And I read over and over in the Psalms, verses like Psalm 78, 4, we will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, the wonders he has done. So hopefully later this year, we're going to unveil the next vision for our church. And I'm telling you, it is audacious. And it's going to require us to be courageous. What I want to do today especially is talk to you about the kind of spirit we're going to need to be a people that makes a difference in nations and generations. A Jonathan spirit and not a Saul spirit. Now, let me explain what I just said. And you can be opening your Bible to 1 Samuel 14 while I do that. So Saul has become king of Israel. He leads the people into a battle with the Ammonite people, and they have victory. But that's not the real problem. The real problem is for decades they have been oppressed at the hands of the Philistines, who have a bigger army and better weapons. Now, Jonathan, after that victory with the Ammonites, gets excited and said, God's ready to deliver Israel. He goes and picks a fight with the Philistines, ticks them off. They muster their whole army and march against Israel. And Saul freaks out, and so does the nation. People leave him as fast as they can. They go hide in rocks and in caves. He's under a tree with just a few hundred men against this mighty army. I want you to see what Jonathan did. And we're starting in chapter 14, verse 6. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, 
Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, as armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come on then. We will cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we'll stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say to us, come up to us, we will climb up because this will be the sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet. Let me stop a second. Now that's called, if you're a rock climber, a grade three climb. When it's so steep that you have to get down and use your hands to crawl up, which means you are militarily vulnerable. You don't have a weapon in your hand. This looks like absolute idiocy. You're climbing hand and foot unarmed up against a Philistine outpost. That's what he's doing, it says. And Jonathan climbed up, using his hands and his feet, with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in the area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army. Those in the camp and the field, those in the outpost and the raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Later in the same chapter, then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel. Now, what you have in this narrative are two completely different spirits. You have a spirit of caution and you have a spirit of vision. Saul abdicated leadership responsibility because he chose a strategy of consolidation rather than conquest. His goal was not to march. His goal was to maintain this in spite of a clear promise from God. Because if you go back just a few chapters, you find out God was ready for Philistine occupation to be over. Go back to chapter seven. Look at verse three with me. Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. God said, I'm ready. Let's do this. Let's end Philistine oppression. Saul would rather sit on the premises than stand on the promises. Not Jonathan. He had a just do it spirit long before Nike had a swoosh. And even though the situation seemed impossible, even though it seemed dire, Jonathan would rather move on and do something rather than hold on and do nothing. And I'm going to contend that same choice is facing churches all across our country and the world right now. 
conservative estimates are that 20% of churches that have closed and aren't meeting in person will never reopen. I know of churches who've made that decision. And I can tell you, talking to church leaders across the country, so many are thinking, I hope we can make it. I I hope we can survive. They're not thinking how we can thrive. They're thinking, how can we just hold on? Not gain, just maybe maintain. And the spirit of caution is filling so many churches, not the spirit of vision. Where I'm believing, this is going to be an epic opportunity for the church of Jesus Christ to come out on the other side of this pandemic more prepared to do more than she ever has before. That we're going to be a church of vision, not a church of caution. And what I want to do is just tell you why I think it is so critical for churches to think this way. And here's the reason number one. Because vision sees past what is to what ought to be. You see, Jonathan knew what is is not what God wants. Philistine domination is not God's desired future for Israel. People and churches with vision don't settle for, well, it is what it is. They pray for the kingdom of God to come now. That's what Jesus told us. Pray for up there to be down here. Pray that the Kingdom will break out wherever you are. And that's why they don't pray, what should we do? As much as they pray, give us the courage to do what we should do. You remember in Acts chapter 4, the early church is being persecuted. And the leaders are told, if you don't stop the Jesus talk, it's going to get really, really ugly for you. They have prayer meeting. Go back and read the prayer. They do not pray, oh Lord, what should we do? They pray, Lord, give us the courage to do what we know we're supposed to do, even if it gets tough. I think sometimes we use prayer as a way to delay obedience. What I mean is that you don't need to seek God's permission to do what he's already said he wants done. You say, well, we're just waiting on God to open a door. Maybe God is waiting on his church to knock on some doors. Like in Acts 16, Paul knows God wants the gospel to go to the world. So he goes knocking on doors. He goes up to Asia, and the door is closed. He tries to go into a place called Bithynia, and the door is closed. Paul doesn't pout and say, well, I'm just going to sit here under the tree and do nothing until God opens the door. He keeps knocking. He winds up in Troas. He gets a vision. The next thing you know, the gospel has penetrated Europe. Listen, in our next vision, We're not going to settle for it is what it is. We are going to pursue what ought to be. This is going to include, for example, plans to take the gospel to people who have never heard it. Plans to translate the Bible for people who've never read it. It's going to include opportunities right here in our city to bless children who are in tough situations that they didn't create. Because we don't have to wonder, does God want the gospel to go to the world? Does God want the Bible to be read? And does God want children to be blessed? And so we're going to do it. We got some significant uphill climbs in front of us. And by the way, you need to know, 
that vision attempts what is right, even if it goes wrong. In our last vision, not every church we planted made it. Not every mission work we launched was as fruitful as we would have hoped. But we were right to do it. Notice that Jonathan climbed that hill not with a guarantee, but with a goal. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Many years ago, off the coast of England, there was a terrible storm and a ship was sinking. They called the Coast Guard. According to the story, one of the young sailors said to the captain, we cannot go out, we will not come back. And the old grizzled captain said, we have to go out, we don't have to come back. You see, to be on mission with God is not to live risk-free. It is to live free to risk. For too long, the church has been known for what she's against and what she doesn't do. Now, I don't mind being known that I'm against some things and there's some things I don't do. But discipleship is not just what you have separated yourself from. It's what you have given yourself to. To follow Jesus is not just to say no. It is to say yes to some big, audacious dreams. And I would rather give myself to something that is trying to do something great for God, even if it fails, than to have a track record of never failing because I never tried. So if you're a sports fan, you recognize this person. Brett Favre is a quarterback for the Packers in the Hall of Fame now. In 2007, he achieved a great milestone in his career. He, he passed what at that time was the record for the most touchdown passes an NFL quarterback has ever thrown. Now, it's since been passed by others, but at that time, he held the record. Now, what's neat is two weeks later, he made another record. He threw the most interceptions of any NFL quarterback who's ever played. Now, if you don't want to throw an interception, just don't throw a pass. But you'll never score a touchdown either. As the great missionary Hudson Taylor used to say, if there's no risk involved, then you don't even need faith, do you? I believe God is honored by the attempt more than by the outcome. And so in our next vision, we are going to pursue some audacious things. We're going to attempt to baptize a person a day for five years. We're going to attempt to add some new campus, to be intentional about becoming more ethnically diverse as a church, to see thousands of our members go through a very intentional discipleship experience. I don't know if we'll hit every go. I know we're going to pursue it because it's right to do what is right even if it turns out wrong. And I know this, it will go wrong if we don't bathe it in prayer. The first word God gave me was ask for nations and generations. And here's why that matters. Because vision reaches for what is unreachable without God. Think about our last vision. We were saying in 15 years we're going to plant over 30 churches. We had never planted one church. We said we're going to launch 
a liberal arts Christian university in Africa. We'd never even started a nursery school in another country. The Jonathan spirit believes odds are irrelevant to God. If you're climbing up a hill using your hands and feet, no weapon in your hand, and they're up there just waiting for you to get there, you better believe that God is going to show up. You see, true vision always precedes provision. Now hang on to that sentence. That's important. What I mean by that, it's not vision when you count everything you've got and say, oh, this is a slam dunk. Let's go do it. We don't even need God. Vision isn't limited by counting your possible resources because it counts on the God of the impossible. God wants to surprise his church with his greatness. But too often his church provides no context for his magnificence to be manifested. We squeeze out the spectacularness of God because we're content to sit under a tree and play it safe. And let me tell you, the church of Jesus Christ will never see miracles as long as she keeps avoiding needing to. Did you notice? God shook the ground only after Jonathan climbed the hill. And you see this all throughout the Bible. That God shows up and does the spectacular after the obedience is manifested. The people are supposed to cross a flooded Jordan River and God says march toward it. It makes no sense at all. But they put their feet in the water and the water stops. And Naaman has dipped six times in a muddy river. What's that got to do with leprosy? But the seventh time he came up and he was clean. And Jesus said to the disciples, cast your nets on the other side. These seasoned fishermen who had fished all night and caught nothing said, because you say so. And they cast the nets and they couldn't pull it in. It was so full of fish. I love the spirit of Mary, the mother of Jesus. They're at a wedding. They run out of wine. She says to the servants, just do what he says. Just do what he says. And the next thing you know, the vats were full of wine or grape juice, depending on the church you grew up in. <laughs> we want to plant more churches. We want to launch a ministry we've never had here to help people escape generational bondage. We have plans to do things to bless hundreds of marriages in our community. Not just in our church, but outside. We have vision, but God is going to have to provide the provision. And one day he'll do that. One way he will do that is by inspiring more of us to engage in kingdom work than ever have before. You see, I, I know why so many churches are stagnant and in decline. They're full of what I call sideliners. People who don't play the game, they just sit up in the stands and critique it. My son played high school basketball. I went to dozens and dozens, probably hundreds of games over the four years he played. 
And here's what I learned at every game. 30 dads in the stand knew more about how to play basketball than the coach on the court. And it reminded me of a poem I read years ago. There was a very cautious man who never laughed or played. He never risked, he never tried, he never sang or prayed. And when one day he passed away, his insurance was denied. For since he never really lived, they claimed he never died. (laughs) Did you notice how Jonathan's victory became a victory for the whole nation? He saw it. They joined it. You see, vision calls the best out of the rest. Jonathan moved and others joined the movement. Has it ever happened to you? Have you ever been so inspired by the courage of someone else, you got up and joined the cause? I came across a neat story just recently. The uh, West Portsmouth High Senators were hosting the visiting Tigers of Waverly High. It was a basketball game. We've all been there. Everybody stands for the playing of the national anthem. And you hit the button and the taped anthem plays. Well, everyone stood and they waited 15 seconds and then 30 seconds and then a minute. And it got very awkward after two minutes. Clearly something was wrong with the sound system and no anthem. And so one of the Waverly Fathers, Trenton Brown, took it upon himself. Watch this video. I want to say two things about that video. Number one, that guy's got some pipes. I hope he's on the praise team of his church. Number two, even though it was hard to hear, if you listen closely, you could detect in the background others joining the song. See, God uses those on the front line to draw others into the battle. And so let me just tell you now, in this next vision, there's going to be a place for every single one of you to join the mission of God. You know, in our last vision, which I love, the primary way we in Tarrant County supported it was funding it or going on mission trips. Let me tell you, in this next vision, there's going to be a way for every single one of you to take the mission of God to your neighborhood, to your school, to your street. Over and over, Jesus told stories about the fact that we are going to have an accounting with God. And on that day, God is not going to say, well-considered, well-intentioned. And he's certainly not going to say, well-criticized. What we all want to hear him say is, well done. And that's already happening. 
We already are a church full of people living into the mission of God for nations and generations. His picture I love sent to me recently. This is Linda Scott. They call her Doc. She's a retired college professor. Attends the West Fort Worth campus. And she shows up every Wednesday night before the students arrive for their Wednesday night gathering to pray. She touches every chair a student will sit in. And she prays that that night they will have an encounter with the Spirit of God. Because she cares about the next generation. I know you do too. Church, just know this. This is a tough season. We are not going to tread water. We're not going to just sit under a tree and hope we make it. We have some big hills we are going to climb. But God is bigger. And so for the next few months, pray this prayer with me from Psalm 45. I will bring honor to your name in every generation. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, God, deliver us from the temptation of a cautious spirit. Deliver us, God, from thinking the win is just to try to survive and not be smaller than we were last year. Deliver us, God, from the kind of thinking that requires no faith and no courage and no risk. God, we ask for nations and generations. We ask to have impact in our city, our country, and yes, the world. Give us big hills because we follow a man named Jesus who climbed the biggest hill of all to die for us. In his name we pray. Amen.